0: All right, y'all. Turn to John 17. Anyone here know Miroslav Volf? Read him, know him. Okay, he is a native Croatian. He survived the war in Yugoslavia during the 1990s. Uh, Today, he's a systematic theology professor at Yale Divinity School, and he wrote an award-winning book on theology called "Exclusion and Embrace: A Theological Exploration of Identity, Otherness, and Reconciliation." Did you write that down? Okay. Um, The book is a product of a stunning question that was asked to him by a guy named uh, Jürgen Moltmann after he was finishing his lecture. So he's given this lecture on arguing that Christians must embrace their enemies just as God has embraced us, an enemy in Christ. And then Moltmann asks this question, Miroslav, can you embrace a setnik? Ooh. Now that cut deep. Do you know what a setnik is? A setnik is a Serbian fighter. Serbian fighters who sowed desolation in Volf's Croatia, who herded its people into concentration camps, who raped its women, who burned down its churches and destroyed its cities. But Miroslav, can you embrace a setnik? Can you? Can you embrace your enemy? Wolf writes of a Muslim woman's personal account that he says is one of the most distressing stories from the war in Yugoslavia. I want you to put yourself in her shoes. Okay, here we go. I'm a Muslim, I'm 35 years old. To my second son, who was just born, I gave the name Jihad. So he would not forget the testament of his mother, which is revenge. The first time I put my baby at my breast, I told him, may this milk choke you if you forget, so be it. The Serbs taught me to hate. For the last two months, there was nothing in me. No pain, no bitterness, only hatred. I taught these children to love. She means the Serbian children. I taught them to love, I did. I'm a teacher of literature. I was born in Ilias and I almost died there. My student, my own student, Zoran, the only son of my neighbor. I'm not gonna say what he did. And as he was doing this, bearded hooligan stood around, laughed and he told me, you are a good for nothing you stinking Muslim woman. I do not know whether I first heard the cry or felt the blow because then I had a former colleague, a teacher of physics, he started yelling at me and hitting me, you Tasha, you Tasha, and he kept hitting me wherever he could. I have become insensitive to pain, but my soul, it hurts. I taught them to love and all the while they were making preparations to destroy me. Everything I love. Jihad. War. This is the only way. Can you embrace your enemy? Our text today deals with an enemy that we have a complicated and confusing relationship with. We just don't know what to do with it, quite honestly. The other two enemies, sin, we get that one. The other enemy, Satan, we might not get him but we know he's real, right? But this this enemy, it's so complicated. It's so confusing. We make millions and millions of choices every day in how to relate or not relate to this enemy. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. We're gonna look at, John 17, we looked at 1 through 5, now we're going to do 6 through 11a. All right, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Why? For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and they've come to know in truth that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I'm coming to you. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh God, we ask that you would shine on the page by the power of your spirit, that you would fill us and anoint us and that you would would open the eyes of our hearts to know you better. And we pray this in your name, amen. All right, what's the enemy that we have a complicated, confusing relationship with? The world, right? Look at verse nine. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Throughout our lives, we make millions and millions of choices between surviving the world on the one hand and embracing the world on the other. And how they interact, and sometimes we're here, sometimes we're there, sometimes we're both, and we quite honestly just don't know what to do. Who's seen M. Night Shalaman's movie The Village? You can raise your hand. Okay, good. The main characters live in that Movie remember? they appear to live in what? Late 1700s, early 1800s, something like that. Some frontier place in America. You know, just by the way they talk, their English is just kind of cute and perfect, you know, not like Texans. You know, or Americans nowadays, right? Uh, their dress, the log homes and buildings. they're not getting their food from HEB. You know this is not the technology, the, the modernization. It's just not there, right? But early in the movie, what do you start feeling when you're watching this movie? The things are kind of creepy, right? I mean, at night, they have these guys posted in towers with torches. If the color red is seen, everybody freaks out. And then you start figuring out something sinister lives beyond the village in the woods. And it's named... Those we do not speak of. And then early in the movie, somebody actually goes a little too far into the woods. And the whole village is in an uproar because they're, they're fearing that this, some kind of contract is broken, is broken with those whom you don't speak of. Here's a spoiler alert. <laughs> if you haven't seen the movie, I'm sorry. But at the end of the movie, you realize it's all a big hoax. It's all a hoax. It's not the 1700s or the early 1800s, it's the 2000s. There are no monsters in the woods. It was a hoax that was perpetrated by the elders in the village to their children and to those that had come into this village or been born into it. And why? Why did they do this? Do you remember? They were trying to scare everyone into staying in the village. That's why they had the forbidden color of red, because it symbolized the blood and the sin and the evil in the world, and it was forbidden. They were trying to protect everyone from the world, they were trying to survive the world. When we, or the church, try to survive the world only, we become the village. I don't want you to miss this. In the elders desire, the leaders of this village, in their desire to survive the world, to escape the world, they failed to realize They take the world with them. The forbidden color red is not just out there. It's in here. It's in the human heart. Okay, so we got to navigate with the world. Okay, it's not just about surviving the world, but it is surviving the world, right? But then what's the other side? Embrace the world? So what if you just embrace the world only? Then look at verse 11a. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Where Jesus is going, where he's going is an other world. It's called the kingdom of God in the Bible. It's called lots of things. It's called the true creation, the new creation. And there's this texture in the Bible. There's this two kingdoms that are together and entwined in this this otherworldly kingdom intrudes and breaks into this world's realm and we get glimpses of it where God actually enters into human history and it's the world of another, of the sent one. And so if we embrace the world only, we're cut off from the world of another. We lose the world of another. We lose the breaking in, the intrusions, of light and glory and reality into our lives and into this world's realm. So what do you do? Please, please hear me. The Bible does not give you a false choice between surviving the world on the one hand or embracing the world on the other. The Bible says it's both at the same time. Survive the world and embrace the John 17 historically has been called the high priestly prayer. The structure's easy to follow if you look in your Bible. Jesus prays for himself. That's what we looked at last week, one through five, right? Second, Jesus prays for his immediate disciples, six through 19. That's what we're looking at today. Now, when he's praying for his immediate disciples, the applications are to us. So the first application lands in the original hearers and intent, and that was the immediate disciples. But the echo applications are for us today. Then lastly, Jesus prays for us those who will believe through the disciples, 20 through 27. I want you to find 11b through 19 in your Bible, if you have it. This is what Jesus prays for. We're not looking at that today. This is the content of his prayer. I want you to look at verse 11. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. The world in the Bible is a hard place. It's a fallen place. The world is an anti garden. It's a garden substitute. It's a garden replacement. It tries to imitate the garden. It tries to give you paradise just like the garden. And it lies very craftily. The world is filled is a broken place that's filled with messed up people in an alienated relationship with God. What that means is because their their relationship with God is wrecked, everything in the world and creation has been turned upside down and broken. It's no longer paradise. The Apostle Paul likens the world to corporate flesh. You know what that means? It's, It's sinful flesh on steroids. We know about sinful human nature, right, that's talked about in the Bible. Well, what the, what the world is, it's taking individual sinful natures and going corporate. So the potential for evil and messiness exponentially and proportionately multiplies in the world and the world's systems. Yeah. Yeah. The world is a place to survive. It certainly is. That's why Jesus prays in 11b, oh God, keep them, protect them while they're in the world. And the picture here is of this king who's a shepherd and he's so powerful and he's so good and he's so kind that he shepherds his people. He like, he is protecting them and guarding them and he won't let the wolves come in and get them. He's the sheep dog, if you see American Sniper. That's why he prays in verse 12, guard them, O God. Don't lose them to the world. So you can be lost to the world. You can be lost in an anti-paradise. You can actually enter an anti-paradise and think it is paradise. And be lost. Right? Look in verse 14, this is why Jesus says the world hates you or hates believers or hates the church. Why does the world do that? Why? Why do you feel like, you know, you just want to be friends and you just want to, you just want to be liked and you just want to be left alone and it just, sometimes it feels like those of you that, that have experienced this, it, like, almost like, you know, and I've got all these movie references, <laughs> I don't know what's going on, but in Braveheart, do you remember when, when Gibson goes, they are, they're going like, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm going to pick a fight. It just feels like that, right? That the world's always saying to you, hey, let's pick a fight. Why? Why, because the world has set itself up as an anti-garden to replace the true garden. So there's a paradise, Milton's right, there's a paradise war always going on for your heart and my heart. There's always a spiritual battle going on for what place are you gonna trust for paradise? What are you going to trust for paradise in your parenting? What are you going to trust for paradise in your marriage? What are you going to trust for paradise in your relationships? What are you going to trust for paradise in your career? What are you going to trust for paradise as your ultimate hope? What are you going to trust for paradise in your present struggles? What are you going to trust for paradise in the life to come? Kingdoms in conflict, 14, 15, 16. Those are verses in 17. But I want you to see that Jesus is also doing much more than just praying for your survival. Do you see that? Look at verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Oh, God. Have you ever wondered why God doesn't just take you home? Already? if you've never expressed that to God, you will one day. Oh God, why am I here? Life sucks. Why don't you just take me home already? You ever ask that? Do You know that Paul, when he talks about the groaning of the world and he talks about the groaning of believers, he uses that word groaning. You know what that word is in the ancient Original language. It's the term used for a soldier who's bleeding out on the battlefield. His life fluid is flowing out of him and he knows he's going to die. He's just watching himself die, so he groans. And Paul says, We groan. Notice that Jesus has his reasons. For not taking you out of the world. He actually prays that you not be taken out of the world. So then why in the world would he leave you here? He gives a reason here. He's going to give it in verse 18. Please hear me. It's not the only reason why he leaves you here. So you can't read everything into verse 18 like, It's gonna answer all your questions and answer all your pain and answer all your groaning as to why you're still here and not taken to be with the Lord if you're suffering right now. One reason he wants you to know about and that's why he records it. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Who's them? The immediate disciples and the ones that come after you and me. So it is survive the world. You bet and be sent into the world. You bet, both at the same time, no false choice. No, it's either this or it's either that. Everyone that builds their life on surviving the world is disobeying God. Everyone that builds their life just on embracing the world, disobeys God. If you do both at the same time, you're a biblical church. Sent means mission. That word literally means mission and it means mission from Jesus. What's the mission? Verse 21, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. Jesus is saying the mission, the reason why I sent, I don't take you out of the world, one of the main reasons I want you to know about church, I want you to know about Christians, I want you to know when you're groaning, the reason why I've left you here, one major reason is so that you're on a mission to participate with me in what I'm doing in the world. And maybe part of your suffering is part of what he's doing in the world, in you, in the world so that the world 23 may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you've loved me. The mission is to participate in what Jesus is doing in the world, not get in the way of what Jesus is doing in the world. Uh, I love RUF, I love Way, I love the RUF ministers that have been here. I've been in campus ministry myself. One of the, the most stunning and guiding and life-giving um, truth or philosophy of ministry for, for the ministry of the PCA called RUF, is this. God is at work. So you get trained, you know, like theologically. Listen, ministers, interns, those that are leadership involved with the RUF ministry, what you and I need to realize, here's the philosophy of ministry. Here's what you need to know. Here's what's gonna get you up in the morning. God is at work. Right now, God is at work. When you show up, you're not the first to arrive. Jesus has already been there, and he's already at work there. So when you groan, you wonder if you're alone, no he's already been there he's he's been there, he's there, he's already at work when you're like oh man i want to I want to reach my dorm for Jesus fantastic, I do too. Just remember though he's already there at work. You're not the savior. If you go to North Korea, he's already there. You go to China, he's already there. You go to your neighbor that you have a hard time with, he's already at work. You and I get to participate in what he's doing and hopefully get less and less in the way of what he's doing. so that they may know that you have sent me and loved me even as I have loved them. The mission is to, that the world would know Jesus, the sent one. The mission is that the world would know Jesus' finished work, that the world would know his staggering grace, that the world would know his indefatigable, indestructible love. That the world would actually become an intelligent mystic, what we looked at last week. That the world would have great clarity in the mind and have realness in the heart of really genuinely knowing who Jesus is and what he's like and what he's done. Creating a Christian village is not being sent into the world. I'm sorry if I step on anyone's toes, but I'm going to step. It's being a coward, it's unloving. It's thinking too highly of yourself. It's disobeying Jesus because he sent you into the world. Being unshockable people, being the kind of person that's not shocked at sin and is not shocked at the messiness in people's lives and actually rolls up their sleeves and get involved in messy lives, that's, Being a part of what Jesus is doing. Building redemptive friendships wherever God has sovereignly placed you. There's a a great commission text in Matthew 28, and it has these main verbs like make disciples, teach, baptize, and then it has what's called a circumstantial participle. Going. And what that means is the going is telling you what all the verbs are supposed to do or when you do the verbs. So make disciples as you're going. Teach them as you're going. Because in the Bible, it's assumed that God has sovereignly placed you where you are. Even if you don't want to be there. Even if you did everything you can to be somewhere else. And even if your messiness in your life got you to this place, the Bible assumes you're there because Jesus put you there. This is part of your going. So, wherever you are in your going, be a part of what he's doing. Build friendships. Get involved in messy lives. There's one thing I need to say here, and I'm going to move on because I think I've, I've kind of pushed this one a little bit, haven't I? <laughs> um, being a super saint in the world is getting in the way of what Jesus is doing. In other words, have you ever thought about your Christian witness? You know, you're like, oh man, I've ruined my Christian witness. Have you ever said that? Have you ever heard someone say that? Or someone say, hey bro, what about your Christian witness? Um, you know, like, oh man, I lost my temper at work and everyone's talking about it now. I've ruined my Christian witness, right? Right? Or a mom who says, oh man, my children, see how selfish I am at home. I'm ruining my witness with them. Here's the deal. Being perfect and being nice and being put together and being mismanners and being Mr., I don't know, what it, Mr. I'm not human kind of person. Whatever, you know what I mean? Um, that's not being a part of what Jesus is doing. That's actually being in the way of what Jesus is doing. You want to be a part of what Jesus is doing? Go confess your mess to your workmates or whoever it was that you lost your temper with. Say, yeah, gosh, guys, I'm sorry. I got angry and, you know, my reputation just meant too much to me. No one will be able to relate to you at all, but you might as well just do it, right? Will you forgive me? That's being a part of what Jesus is doing. Being a parent that says, I'm going to come alongside my kids because I'm dealing with their selfishness because I'm a selfish person too. And I can come alongside my kids as a fellow fallen worshiper and say, I need Jesus too, kids. Today, tomorrow, forever. That's being a part of what Jesus is doing. I don't give a rip about your Christian witness. I don't. Jesus is praying then and now that we survive the world and embrace the world at the same time. Okay, what are the spiritual resources in this passage to do that, though? Think about it. How are you going to survive the world? How are you going to embrace the world? How are you going to do both at the same time? How are you going to avoid being the Christian village, right? And how are the Christian ghetto, whatever it is, or how are you going to avoid looking and embracing and just being the world? How do you have both of those at the same time, the tension? I want you to look at verse 11b through 19. I've, this is the content of Jesus' prayer. We're not looking at that, but I just need to tell you that. Verses 6 through 11, they'll come before it, right? Because it's giving you the power of the prayer. Do you see that? The grounds, the foundation of the prayer is the power of the prayer. What's the power? Look at verse 6. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. What's the power? The power is ancient magic. The power is ancient grace. The power is an ancient, indefatigable, indestructible love. God's in the grammar, so I want you to find that word, yours they were. If you have your Bibles, if you have a pen, I'd underline were, yours they were. Were is a past imperfect verb. You know what that means? It means continuous action in the past. What? It's action in the past that's continuous. (laughs) Continuously in the past, it's ancient. You belong to God. Continuously in the past, you're God's. You've been loved, you've been known, you've been seen, you've been held, you've been sent for. It's ancient magic. Notice Jesus' order of the ancient magic. Number one, yours they were. Number two, so you gave them to me. Oh, don't, don't miss that order. Jesus didn't come to get God to love you. Jesus came because God loves you. The incarnation didn't get God to love you. His death didn't get God to love you. His resurrection didn't get God to love you. His, his exaltation didn't get God to love you. It's proof he does. Paul says, but God demonstrates, not gets it, demonstrates his love towards you in this. While you were a sinner, Christ died for you. We belong to God before Jesus' earthly ministry. Ancient grace, ancient love and magic. Ancient grace gives you a solid self. Ancient grace gives you an intact identity. Ancient grace gives you a solid security and a solid salvation. And what that means is, is that your security and yourself, the fact that you're, you want some sense of peace and rest, you want some sense of paradise and realness, and you want to be able to rest on it, and you want to be able to know it's secure, and you want to be able to know it's protected from harm, it rests, not on your performance. It doesn't rest on your moral performance. It doesn't rest on your spiritual performance. It doesn't rest on any human performance. It rests on God. It rests on the wonder of God's own character. It rests on God's ancient grace for you. It rests on God's ancient love for you. It rests on ancient magic. Who are you? Are you a bad mother? Are you a six figure salary? Are you who Susie loves? Are you a gifted musician or athlete? No. You belong to God. You're God's. You're loved. God, You're graced by God. You're his. And when you know that, like an intelligent mystic, clarity in your mind, realness in your heart, you survive the world and you embrace the world at the same time.